Well, I, I want you guys to imagine the following scene, but don't imagine it too graphically. A woman in an adulterous embrace with a man that she hardly knows. Suddenly the, the doors are burst open and the religious police come charging in. They take her away. They drag her out of the location. They drag her into the street. They drag her across town and they drag her to a religious leader. And their intention is one. They, they only have one thing in mind. They want to bring shame on her and they want to condemn her to death. And they want her to be stoned to death. Now, what does that sound like? If you've been following the news this year, you might go, that sounds like Iran. It sounds like a Muslim country run by Sharia law, which says that if you commit adultery, you are guilty and worthy of capital punishment. You should be stoned to death. Actually, in preparing to preach this message, I looked at a video, I kind of regret having done that, on the internet that has one of those, it was one of those candid uh, sorry, not candid, secret videos that was taken uh, in Iran when three people were being stoned to death because they had committed adultery. It was brutal. They wrapped them up in cloths. They buried them in the ground about halfway up so only from their waist up is still available to be stoned, visible to be stoned. And they even actually have specifications of the size of stone that is to be used. And then they just start, they gather around and they start pounding these people with stones until you can see the, the bright red blood coming through the sheet. Well, if you thought that that was only the case in Islam, then you would be mistaken. And you may have thought, yeah, you know what though, we're preaching through the book of John and we just got to John chapter 8, so probably he's talking about the adulterous woman. And you would be right. Today we're going to be reading and actually... John chapter 7, verse 53, it's the last verse, up through chapter 8, verse 11, and it is that scenario where the woman is taken away, and she's taken to the religious leader. It's not an imam, it's not a Muslim religious leader, it's Jesus, and the religious police of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, take her to Jesus in the hope of her being condemned, and they have one other hope that actually I'm not going to mention right now because we're going to get to it when we look through the text. So let me start off by reading the passage, and then we'll go right to it. I'm going to read, by the way, from the English Standard Version. Most of us use the New International Version. Uh, English Standard is a little bit more literal, and for other reasons as well, which I won't go into details right now, I like it a little bit better. I'm going to actually start with verse 1 of John chapter 8 and read right through verse 11. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Then the next day, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses... In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, 
they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, we got to start actually with a textual problem. And what I mean by that is if you take this, and this is a huge, I love this, it's the ESV study Bible. It's a fantastic Bible. It's not all Bible because it has some interesting commentaries and articles and things like that. But take the Bible part of this, the inspired word of God that's in here. Occasionally we come across problems and difficulties that we don't often know what to do with. And there are smarter people than me, smarter people than many of us perhaps, that try to deal with it. But you know what? The good news is with their help, we don't have to be the smartest people in the world. The Holy Spirit still gives us insight into the Word of God. And the textual problem that I'm talking about is that this passage, which is chapter 7, verse 53, right up through chapter 8, verse 11, is what I read, doesn't show up. In fact, in your NIV, it says this, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have this passage. And so it makes us go, well, wait a minute. If, if the early manuscripts, which is where we get our Bible, don't have this passage, why is it in our Bible? Others will look at it and say, okay, maybe it is supposed to be here, but it's supposed to come after John chapter 7, verse 36, or after John chapter 21, verse 25, or not even in the book of John. Let's put it in Luke after chapter 21, verse 38. And they'll even make some variations in the text. It's not exactly the way we just read it. Why did they do that? Why is this asterisk next to this passage saying it doesn't show up in the early manuscripts? What's the deal? What's the problem? And what are we supposed to do about it? Because I don't want to preach. I mean, we're going to spend 40 minutes or something. And I spent a lot more than that preparing a message. I don't want to waste my time on a passage that's not even supposed to be in Scripture. So, how did this passage get in our Bibles? And then that begs the question, how did we get our Bibles in the first place? Um, it probably is helpful for us to do a quick overview of the reason that the Bible exists. So, back up, back up, back up. Go way back in time, way back, way back. Old Testament time. And God, go right to the beginning. God creates the heavens and the earth. Well, He wants us to know that He's the one that created it. He wants to communicate to us. What's the best form of communication? Communication that endures over time, chronologically, and that can go across geographic distances. There's only one form of communication that can superar, that can overcome the time barrier and the geographic barrier, and we can't add other barriers, cultural barrier. It's written. If you write it down, it can stand the test of time. It can go from one geographic location to another. It can go from one language group to another. So that's what God did. He says, I'm, I'm great and I'm glorious and I want my people that I've created to know that. So let's write it down. And so he chose his elect prophets and apostles. Those are the main two groups of people that wrote the books in Scripture. In the Old Testament, mostly prophets. In the New Testament, mostly the apostles. There are some exceptions. And these guys either received the message and preached it, and somebody else wrote it down, or they themselves wrote it down. So what do we have? We have 
Second Timothy 3.16 telling us that these manuscripts that were written down were the inspired word of God put on paper. God inspired these men to write this message down, to stand the test of time, to cross all of the geographic and linguistic and cultural barriers so that we could know God. Well, you've got the inspiration part, but then you get to what we could call the transmission part. And I've already alluded to that. At some point, somebody hears the message or reads the original manuscript. Somebody else hears about it and they go, we want it too. And so they start to reproduce the manuscripts. That's what scribes historically would have done. They would write down the same thing over and over again. This isn't a sermon about the canon, uh, but if we had more time, we would talk about the very rigorous standards by which the scribes would copy the manuscripts. It was so rigorous that they could spend hours, weeks, even months of their lives copying a manuscript, and then if somebody else goes and looks over it and finds three tiny errors, they will burn that manuscript. They won't even just correct the errors. They'll burn it. So throughout history, we've had this process of transmission because the manuscripts have been copied faithfully over time. Well, then somebody else who speaks more than one language gets a hold of one of these manuscripts and he goes, hey, this is great. I want my people to read this manuscript. I want my people to read this message from God. So then you get to the translation part. You had the inspiration and it was written down. You had the transmission of it, but now we've got to cross cultures and languages, so you have the translation of it. The, the Bible is the book that has been most translated and most produced and printed in the history of the world. And there are thousands more manuscripts. There are 12,000 bits and pieces or complete manuscripts of the New Testament. And if somebody says to you that the New Testament is not faithful, the sad irony is they happily accept a book from Homer or somebody else which has one or two or three extant manuscripts and they trust them as faithful. But they say, well, the New Testament, which has 12,000 manuscripts, is not faithful. That's baloney. The Bible that has reached us today has been preserved. Excuse my idiomatic expressions, if, you know, just since most of you, English is not your... Mother tongue, if you say, why, why did he, why, I'm hungry now. He said baloney. What is that all about? If you don't understand what I say, just tell me and I'll explain. Baloney, yeah, there are other ways to say it that are not so um, trite and playful like bull. It's not real. It's not true. They're lying. They're either lying or they're deceived. So what we have through the translation of Scripture is in English or in Portuguese, if that's your native language or in Spanish or whatever your native language happens to be, it's very possible that you have the Bible, probably the whole Bible. In our cases, we have hundreds of different versions with slight variations because the original text gives us the liberty to interpret certain words differently. Well, that's how the Bible got to us, but what about this particular passage that some people say shouldn't be in there? Well, let's look at that specifically. There are a couple of ways that you can determine, or that, not us, because it was done 1,700 years ago, 1,800 years ago, 1,900 years ago, to determine how that text managed to stay in or be found in our Bibles. The way that people would have done that is to look first at the internal evidence. So what I'm saying is, if you look at John chapter 7, verse 53, right up through John 8, 
verse 11, and you say, is there anything in here that does not concord with the rest of Scripture? It doesn't jive with the rest of Scripture. Something that contradicts the clear biblical teaching that we have in other places in Scripture. And you look at this passage, you go, no. To the contrary, this passage reinforces other teachings and principles that we have found in Scripture. So there's no internal evidence that would say this passage is questionable. It should not be here. In fact, if you were to just look at John's intention for writing his gospel, you would say, well, then it makes perfect sense that this passage is in the book of John. Remember at the end of the book, in just about chapter 20, verse 31, John says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Well, everything that we're going to study today in this passage ties in to what John said the point of the book was in the first place. These things about the adulterous woman were written so that you may believe in Jesus, that He's the Christ, that He's the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, just like the adulterous woman, you may have life. The internal evidence says this passage should be here. There's no reason for it not to be. And now why would we possibly put it in this particular location and not those other three options that I mentioned earlier? I think it might have something to do with the verses that come next. We stop at chapter 8, verse 11, but look at just four verses ahead, verses 15 and 16, where Jesus says to these same types of people, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. It's exactly the principle that was illustrated a few verses earlier in this passage. So the internal evidence suggests to us that this passage should be in Scripture. There's no reason for it not to be in Scripture. But there's also external evidence. And I would categorize external evidence into... Uh, two subcategories, early external evidence and also noteworthy external evidence. The early evidence would be the closer that the people writing the things down are to Christ. In other words, was it an original apostle like John? Then the more likely it is that it is true, that it is really what Jesus preached, and it is really what God intends to teach through Scripture. So this early internal sorry, external evidence, we discover, for example, in the third century, so now we're not even talking about the apostle right afterwards, who knew Christ and who wrote it down during, or in the apostle's case, soon thereafter, the life of Christ. We're talking about the fact that it got written down by the apostles, and then 10 years passed, and then a few more decades, and then 100 years, and then another 100 years. We're in the third century, and in the third century, we're starting to enter into a phase of church history where councils were happening to deal with doctrinal impurities, to deal with issues of not just orthodoxy, but orthopraxy, doing the right things, doing the things that Scripture teaches. And in this third century, this passage was cited as biblical grounds for accepting people who had been disciplined back into the flock. In other words, you sinned and it was grave and it was grievous. And what do we do about that? Well, 
we see Jesus accepting this woman into his flock. And so we will make the determination 300 years later, based on that passage, that people who are genuinely repentant, even after a grievous sin, should be allowed to continue to fellowship or should be allowed back into the fellowship with the people of God. So that was an early external evidence. But there's also noteworthy external evidence. And noteworthy would be, for example, some of the church fathers like Jerome or like Ambrose or Augustine. And for us, maybe Augustine would be the, the most uh, well-known or the one that at least we've heard about. Maybe Jerome in the second place. And in fact, I want to use those two in particular to explain why this passage is in our Bibles. Jerome, his great contribution to church history and his great contribution to the canon, uh, in a sense, at least to us maintaining this passage today, what he did was to take the Bible in its original manuscripts, and you know the Old Testament was written mainly in Hebrew, partly small bits, in Aramaic, and then uh, the New Testament was written in Greek, and what Jerome did was exactly that process between transmission and translation. The, the manuscripts were going around, but there was a shift taking place in the Roman Empire from the Greek language to Latin. Not dissimilar to what's happening in many countries around the world where English is actually taking away some of the, the prominence of other languages. Maybe it's because it's in the, the technological realm and people have to learn to speak English because technology... It uses a lot of English words. There are other fields where you might be forced to learn English. Or in, in the United States, if you go to Florida or Texas or California, Spanish is supplanting English in a lot of places as the most spoken language. In Miami, as one example that Fabio just, I heard him say Miami. Miami is less than 50% Americans and native English speakers. So what happened Back then, it's kind of like what's happening now with Spanish or with English. Latin was overtaking Greek. And Jerome said, well, you know what? We need to have the Bible available in Latin. And he translated the, the Bible into Latin, and that's called the Vulgate. It was translated into what would be the common language of the people so that everybody could understand it. Well, he does that, and he includes this passage in question in his translation. Now, this is a guy who is no slouch. This was a guy who loved the Lord, and this was a man who was, who was intelligent and gifted, and he felt like this passage should be included in Scripture. Well, Augustine was another man like that, and if you go dig through his teaching, you discover that he seemed to believe that the text was originally in the manuscripts. It wasn't that it wasn't there and then somebody added it, it was actually there, and he thinks some people removed it, and then later on, people under the Holy Spirit's leadership put it back in. And there was a reason for that. There were people that he called weak in the faith. These were people who very possibly had sin in their lives, and it was adultery. And we're talking about church leaders, unfortunately. And so these guys thought, hey, you know, we can take the heat off a little bit if we just take that passage out where it talks about the adulterous woman. And then people won't think about adultery, and they'll just kind of leave us alone. Or some others who possibly had wives who were adulterous and thought they could use that passage to justify their ungodly actions. So what Augustine says is, well, 
It clearly is God's word, according to the internal evidence. It clearly is God's word externally because of the way it hasn't been forgotten in the first few centuries of the church. So we need to put it back in there. God intended it. And it wasn't just Augustine. It wasn't just Jerome. And this is a great mistake that some people make and that we believe sometimes. When they want to criticize the New Testament or even the Bible, they're going to say, yeah, but a bunch of men got together in a church council or series of councils and they decided what would be in the Bible or not. They weren't deciding anything. They were saying, look, over the last three to four hundred years, the church, as it has grown, has accepted these letters from Paul, these ones from Peter, these prophecies and, and books from Isaiah and from Jeremiah. And they, the councils, all they did is say, these books have historically been accepted as the word of God. And they ended up saying, therefore, we affirm that the 66 books that today we call the Bible are the word of God. And they affirmed that this passage in John should be present. So, what is our conclusion then? Before we get into the text, my conclusion is I agree with Augustine. I agree with Jerome. I agree with the process because God facilitated the process. God superintended the process of inspiration, of transmission, of translation. And then the early church affirmed, yes, this is indeed the word of God. This passage is indeed the word of God. So my conclusion, some people would say, well, it's... Nothing here that's contrary to sound doctrine. So they would say it probably did happen. Probably Jesus really did. It's possible. But since it didn't seem to be part of the original text, we don't want it. But I'm saying for all the reasons we just talked about, I, I agree with them. It does sound like Jesus' ministry. It does sound like something John would write. So yes, it should be part of the original text. And I believe that has been all along God's design. So let's look at the text. I'm not going to talk about verse 53. I don't really need to talk a lot about verse 1, but I will mention one thing. It says that Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. You guys probably know that that was near Jerusalem. It was about three kilometers to the east of Jerusalem. So you had to go from Jerusalem through the Kidron Valley, and then you would arrive at the Mount of Olives. Whether you know that or not, knew that or not, okay, but now you know. But there's something more important, and you probably do know this, because when I say Mount of Olives, it doesn't sound unfamiliar to you. You go, yeah, yeah, I know, I've heard of that. Well, the Mount of Olives, look, if you were to look at Luke chapter 22, verse 39, it says that Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. It seems that for some reason, Jesus found a sense of comfort in that isolation when he would go there, whether it was there to pray, whether it was there to have intimacy and fellowship with his father, and often, as was the custom of the disciples and others, they would follow him there, and they would ask for him to teach them. But Jesus, in his heart, in his mind, and in his reality of that day, especially those three years of ministry, he found a sense of comfort or consolation in the Mount of Olives, and he would go there as was his custom. If you think about Matthew chapter 24 and 25, what do we call that? The Olivet Discourse. Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, and he was talking about the signs of the end of the times, and of the second coming 
of the Messiah himself. The Olivet Discourse is famous to us. It's well known to us. And he gave that teaching at least one time. If he taught it more, we don't know. But we do know that he taught it at least once. And he taught it on the Mount of Olives. So Mount of Olives is significant for those reasons. There's one more reason. If you look at Zechariah 14, chapter 4, it tells us exactly where Christ, the Messiah, will return for his second coming. It says, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. So even though the activity and the teaching that takes place that we're going to look at didn't happen on the Mount of Olives, but for some reason, in preparation perhaps for what was to come the next day, Jesus retreated to the Mount of Olives. And he passed the night there, spent the night there apparently. And as he often would do in praying and fellowship with his Father, knowing that, Day after day and week after week, he would be tested and he would be challenged by Satan and by ungodly men. And that is exactly what happened the next day. Verse 2, it says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So we find another place that Jesus had the habit of going to. And it was the temple. He went again to the temple. The temple is in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Uh, we don't have the projector up. You can look in your Bibles if you want. Afterwards, look in my ESV study Bible. There's an amazing picture of the Temple Mount and the Temple itself on Mount Moriah and what it looked like during the time of Herod, during the time of Christ's ministry. He went there, and it's a place that he had often gone. For some reason, he would go there. Why would he go? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is he was in the habit of going since he was a child. If you remember in Luke chapter 2... The story of Jesus in his infancy, it says that his parents went up to Jerusalem every year for the Feast of, Feast of Passover. So his parents had the habit of going there, and they would take him. At least on the time when he was 12 years old, they took him, and that was the time when he stayed behind. And they left, and then they got worried and had to go back and find him and said, What are you doing? And he said, Well, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And, and his father's business had something to do with the temple. And that's where he finds himself again on this particular morning when he has the encounter with the scribes and the Pharisees and the adulterous woman. So I think the reason he would go to the temple is because he knew he would find people who were seeking the Messiah. He would find people there who wanted to know about the one true God. And so he goes and he found some people. He found some people that genuinely wanted to know more about God because they asked Christ to teach them, and some other people who were not so concerned about knowing God as they were about rigorously and hypocritically fulfilling the laws of the Old Testament. So Jesus goes to the temple again, and it says that all the people came to him. Now these could have been skeptics, but we know that some of them certainly were people who were genuinely seeking to know God. They'd already heard about him. For example, if you back up a little bit in the book of John to chapter 17, sorry, 7, verses 14 through 16, it says that about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, and what did he do? He began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, they were amazed at his teaching, and they said, how is it that this man has learning when he never studied? And Jesus answered them, hey guys, it's real simple, the teaching's not mine. This teaching belongs to the one who sent me. It's my Father's teaching. I'm conveying to you what I've learned directly from my Father. 
So Jesus was already building a reputation of being somebody who talked with authority. As soon as anybody found out, I can't even imagine, he didn't get to the temple and then people started going, hey, Jesus is here. Probably from the time he descended, if we're going to look, look to the east, from the time he came off of the Mount of Olives, three kilometers. So he's going to take about half an hour walking slowly uh, on a dirt, dusty trail to get to Jerusalem and then to go up into the temple. And people saw that. They had half an hour at least to say, hey, it's that Jesus guy. He's going to the temple, it looks like. Hey, I, you know, I heard that he says he's the Messiah. I don't, I don't know if I believe that or not. But he's going to go teach at the temple, so I'm going. Hey, you want to come? Come on, Lucas. Let's go. And others who were like, but I already heard him teach. It's amazing when he teaches. I want to go hear it. Let's go. And they grab their friends, and they go to the temple, and there's Jesus ready to teach. Mark puts it a little bit differently, but it's, it's shorter, but it's very powerful. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, the people were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Well, we're setting ourselves up for a confrontation here. Because Jesus arrives at the temple, and who else comes? The scribes. So it's like freestyle. Help me out with the, what's the, it's my tie. It's, you know, you get these two brutal guys in the ring. Sorry, Jesus isn't so brutal. Sometimes he can be when he needs to be. I wouldn't want to have a fight with Jesus. The guy was a carpenter. He, he was probably in better shape than any of us. I'm not going to get in the same ring with him. And especially not spiritually, I'm not going to try to go head-to-head to head with him. But the scribes thought they could do that. And Mark said, well, if the scribes knew anything, that, you know, they would listen to me and they would leave Jesus alone. Because Jesus taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So they all went to check out Jesus. They wanted a show, perhaps. They wanted a spectacle. Or they wanted a fight. And they wanted to see somebody kick somebody else's self out of the ring. And that's kind of what they got. If we look on, we'll see exactly what happened. The great thing about Jesus' teaching is that it wasn't just a question of... He's not just an academician. It's not just an academic question. If my mind was working in Portuguese just then, I got the words inverted and I couldn't make it come out right in English. Um, it wasn't just a question of being an academician. It wasn't just a question of teaching in a boring, academic, professorial fashion. Jesus used... Object lessons. And so Jesus is in the temple, and unbeknownst to the scribes and the Pharisees, they were actually playing right into God's plan because they brought the object lesson to Jesus. Still in verse 2, it says that he sat down and taught them. And this is, you know, I said Jesus was in good shape. He was probably pretty limber, too. He sat down. If you go anywhere from um, the Middle East, further east, so we've got workers that are scattered throughout North Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia. If they were to go into a traditional teaching context of the religions that dominate there today, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, it's very possible they're going to find this guru-style position where they sit down on the ground cross-legged and they just begin to speak Hopefully wisdom, hopefully something that's true. And that's what Jesus did. He sat down, probably cross-legged, because he was more limber than I am, and he could sit that way for a long period of time, and I can't. i got to have a nice, comfortable chair, or i got to be up and moving around. I just can't sit down for very long. But he could, and he sat down, and he started to teach them. And if there was ever, if you think about it, a, a true guru, it was 
Jesus. So he sits down and he teaches. Verse 3, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, we don't need to go into a lot of detail. You guys know. If you, if you say scribes, what are some of the terms in the New Testament that we talk about? Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin. They're not all the same in terms of function, but they're all the same in terms of description. They're all a bunch of rotten apples. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. They're all a bunch of people more committed to fulfilling legalistically the Old Testament law than to fulfilling the law in spirit and in truth. So we got these scribes, and the scribes are the ones that were basically kind of like politicians. They're the ones who were responsible for public affairs in the nation of Israel. They didn't have authority in the Roman Empire. They had authority as Jews over the Jews. And they were very influential. So by the time that Jesus comes onto the scene, these guys were even called lawyers. So if you... Any lawyers in here? Yeah, we, I, we all have friends who are lawyers. And, and if they were here, I would joke with them the same way that I'm going to say right now. They have a long history of rotten apples. Because the scribes, in a sense, were lawyers. And they weren't concerned about truly keeping the law in spirit and truth. They were concerned about hypocritically insisting that other people keep the law, but they held themselves to be above or beyond the law. These guys started to become, in a sense, part of the Pharisees. They were almost a sect of the Pharisees. And it does, in fact, say that the scribes and the Pharisees, as I said, you can describe them the same way. They're people who were hostile towards Jesus. They were hostile towards the apostle. The apostles, and they were bitterly opposed to anything that these men taught. The Pharisees were not so much politicians as religious leaders. It was a religious party. Paul even said he was part of the Pharisees before he came to know Christ. They're the ones who taught the Old Testament law, but they usually didn't follow the Old Testament law. Now, we all need to be careful because we teach. Sometimes we do it publicly, like I'm doing right now. Sometimes we do it as Sunday school teachers. That's public. That's formal. You better watch out. But we also teach by our lives. We teach the people that we work with every day. We teach the people that we live with every day. And we need to make sure that we're not acting like Pharisees. And you know what? It, if I had to be honest with myself, and that hurts sometimes. I, I don't like being honest with myself sometimes. I would say, yeah, I'm kind of a Pharisee sometimes. I teach publicly one thing, but I don't always live it. It's that old expression, you've got to walk what you talk. Can you walk the talk? And that's a challenge for us. Before we even look at the lesson about the adulterous woman, we've got to say, am I a Pharisee? Before I can even learn from the situation between Jesus and the adulterous woman, I've got to discover if I'm a Pharisee. Because God's not going to trust new knowledge and wisdom to me if I don't use it in a way that glorifies Him. So, Jesus called these guys hypocrites. He called them a generation of vipers. Not the kind of people that you want to hang out with. And Jesus didn't hang out with these guys because they were self-righteous. He said, you know what? You want to rely on your own justice and righteousness to get yourself to heaven? Good luck. I got a better way. And Jesus went to the people, the sinners, the prostitutes, the adulterous women, the tax collectors. And said, hey, I got, I got a way for you. To know the one true God. To receive eternal life. It's not the way that they're teaching. Now, these scribes and these Pharisees, verses 3 and 4, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. 
And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, you, you, there's some of the questions that immediately come to mind. The first thing I want to know is, how did she get caught in the act of adultery? You know, it's, it's sex. It's intimacy. You're normally not doing that out in public. You're probably in somewhere hidden. It's you and the person you're committing it with. It's, there's nobody else there. So how did she get caught? Well, this says something about the callousness of these men who brought the woman to Jesus because they knew where she would be and when she would be there. It sounds like a plot. It sounds like a scheme. It sounds like they were trying to trap her. And if you, if you play this out in your mind, you can imagine something like this. They talked to the man, may or may not have been married. Adultery, uh, adultery implies that normally either the man was or she was. The context leads us to think that maybe she was a prostitute. There were married prostitutes. It was one of the ways that actually women would not get busted for being prostitutes. If they were married and signed up on an official list of prostitutes, they were uh, free from the condemnation of the law. So she may have been married, but she was a prostitute no matter what. That's what the text says. And he may or may not have been married, but it sounds like these religious leaders and these scribes went to him and said, hey buddy, got a great deal for you. Free sex, and we'll pay you for it. That's what it sounds like. You go have sex with that woman, and then we're even going to pay you money on top of that to be quiet, and to not tell anybody that this was part of an entrapment plan. And so, how did they end up finding the woman? Because they had already arranged for it to all, all happen, and then they go get her, they barge in, remember the religious police scene? That's exactly what happened. They barged in. I don't know if they weren't watching in the first place. And if they were watching what was going on, a whole new list of sins comes into play here. That Jesus taught against. Thinking lustfully. Not just committing adultery, adultery, literally, physically, but right here in your mind. If they were watching that, I'm sorry, if they were normal men, then they were committing adultery in their minds. So now, they've set themselves up. They haven't just set up the woman. They've set themselves up because they're breaking the Old Testament laws without even realizing it. And they're breaking the New Covenant laws, which is Christ's teaching. I'm talking about, for example, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, where Jesus says, don't commit adultery in your mind. If you imagine it, it's the same as if you do it. Like in Exodus chapter 20, when he says, don't commit adultery physically. And these guys totally unaware of the sins that they themselves were committing were only concerned about entrapping the woman. So it doesn't just reveal their callousness by not caring at all for the woman, not caring at all for their own sins. They were just going to set this woman up to use her as a trap and a test for Jesus. That was designed and plotted and planned in advance. It sounds actually like if you've been following the news, I like to watch Fox News because they give a whole different perspective on things than the main other international networks like CNN and BBC and Global here. They will actually, and, and I'm not saying they're not often leaning in one direction a little bit too far, but they're at least leaning in the other direction from all the main news outlets. And so they'll tell you stories that you don't hear anywhere else. And these guys, Fox, in the United States have been reporting Week after week, lately on a group called ACORN. ACORN is a 
community organizing group that tries to get impoverished people, it tries to help them theoretically, and that's a good thing, but it also tries to get them involved in uh, signing up to vote, and then tries to get them to vote for the very left-leaning liberal uh, politicians like Barack Obama. Well, two young people in their... Uh, I, one of them, I don't, the lady, I don't even think she was 20 years old, and the guy, they're both university age. And they start going into these ACORN offices with hidden video cameras, and they start asking these ACORN people, hey, basically this is how it went over and over again. And the ones that they reported, and now there have been 30 people prosecuted, indicted, and said, you, you committed a federal crime here, you committed some type of crime. Because they would go in there and they would say, hey, you know, we've got 12 or 13 uh, young girls, 12, 13 years old, we want to bring them from Central America. And you know what? The thing is, they're going to be prostitutes here. So we don't really know how to bring them in uh, because we know if we do theoretically, we've got to declare it to the government and there's going to be a lot of problems. And we want to basically bring them in illegally and we want to hide the fact that they're here and we want to find a way that we can use them as prostitutes without anybody knowing. And this community organizing organization Several in several different offices all around the United States basically said, oh, yeah, 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 no, we, we know exactly, yeah, we understand what you're talking about. Well, what you could do is this, this, and this. So they were aiding and abetting several crimes on several different level, levels. Now, ACORN is going, hey, that's entrapment. They can't do that to us. It doesn't matter if it's entrapment or not. The entrapment didn't cause the people to break the law, just like the entrapment didn't cause the lady to commit the sin of adultery, or the guy for that matter. They're still going to be held accountable for what they did. And we'll get to that in a minute. But in addition to the callousness, it reveals their hypocrisy. And in addition to that, we need to remember that sin is always sin. So it doesn't matter if it was callous. It doesn't matter if it was hypocritical. It doesn't matter if it was entrapment. They sinned. The woman sinned. We cannot justify what she did. Adultery is always an abomination to God. What, is, what does marriage represent? It represents the covenant relationship between God and His bride. And the way that Christ is exalted and honored in the world, one of the main vehicles is that we, Timothy and Caleb, we, Jason and Sonia, we, Alicia and Ulu, we, Anna and Ernie, we show the world what it means to be faithful, to, to be, I won't say eternally, but in this life, totally committed to the covenant relationship that we have with each other because Christ is totally committed to his bride. And so this lady committed adultery. That was an abomination to God. She was breaking what is the most foundational and fundamental type of covenant relationship that reflects to the world the relationship that God desires to have with his bride, with his family. So we can't forgive her without, first of all, dealing with the sin. Of course we would forgive her, and Christ would forgive her. But it doesn't mean there are not consequences for the sin. It doesn't mean that you can justify her having committed the sin. Verse 5, it says, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. And you know what? The scribes and the Pharisees were right. They understood the Old Testament law very well. And they were probably thinking of Deuteronomy 22.22. It says that if a man is found lying with the woman of another man, or with the wife of another man, that's adultery, both of them shall die. There's the hypocrisy again, because where was the man in this story? He was paid off and he was gone, and nobody knew who he was, except Jesus probably. Both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. 
So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Adultery in God's eyes is evil. Adultery is something that may not and cannot exist among the people of God. And I've already explained why. But God calls it evil. There is no more serious category of sin than evil. It's evil. And God wants to purge it from our midst. He wanted to purge it from their midst. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees seemed a little bit indignant and offended as if, God, we know what Deuteronomy 22.22 says. And this lady did it. And that's an offense to you, God. We know that it's evil. And so, we should fulfill the law. Right, Jesus? We should fulfill the law and stone her. That's what Moses taught us. Jesus, what do you say about that? Is that right? Well, they weren't so concerned about defending the law, were they? Or about defending God's honor. You know how we know? Because the next verse is 5 and 6. It says, what do you say, Jesus, about this? They said this to him that they might have some charge against him. And right here, it's right in the middle of the passage, and it is the heart of the story. And you cannot miss this. And unfortunately, most preaching and commentaries will miss this. They'll say, yeah, it reveals the true motives. They wanted to trap Christ. But what they don't say is, you know what? Who's the, who's the main focus of the story? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about the woman. And you know what? It's always all about Jesus. Everything is always all about Jesus. The reason we exist, it's all about Jesus. The reason he formed his bride, the church, it's all about Jesus. The reason he wants to purge evil from his midst, it's all about Jesus. Everything is always all about Jesus. The story is about Jesus. The woman is an important part of it. The woman helps us be more like Jesus, honor Jesus better, but the story is not about the woman. It's about Jesus. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees didn't intend it this way, but God did it. He used the story to give himself glory. He used the story to give himself glory. He said, I want to teach you something. I'm going to use this woman that you all, scribes and Pharisees, intended for evil, and you can remember Genesis 50, 20. It's the same as what happened with Joseph's brothers when they sold him into slavery. But how does the story turn out? God used Joseph, raised him up, to second in command in Egypt, and he single-handedly saved the Hebrew race who were dying or would have died of hunger. He said, come and live here with us in Egypt. We have food. We'll take care of you. And verse 20 of Genesis 50 says that what those brothers had intended for evil or to do harm, God intended for the good. And it's the same thing here. It's an evil story. They had an evil intention and God used it for good and used it for his glory. But, humanly speaking, it's a no-win situation. It's not a win-win, it's a lose-lose. Jesus, humanly speaking, didn't have a way out. Because they say, what do you do, Jesus? <laughs> Got you now. Because they knew that, first of all, they should have gone to the proper authorities. They shouldn't have even gone to Jesus. Jesus was a teacher. Jesus was not a religious a formal, official, religious authority. We know that he was a spiritual authority. We know that. And we know that through his teaching. We know that through, we know he's the son of God. We know he's the Messiah. 
No question about it on our part. But what they should have done is gone to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the governing body of religious affairs that should have made the judgment on the woman, not Jesus. So there already is just more evidence that they're setting up the trap. And then in this trap, they're thinking like this. If Jesus sides with Jewish law and says, yes, we should stone her to death, then he would be going in direct contradiction to Roman law, which was the overarching governing and political authority of the Hebrew nation at that time, because they were in Palestine, which was part of the Roman Empire. And they said, we and we alone have the authority to pass the sentence of capital punishment. That was for the Roman government, not for the Jewish religious leaders. So they're thinking, if Jesus says... Yes, let's stone her. They're going to say, no, Jesus, you're a traitor to the Roman Empire. You're a traitor to the Roman Emperor. And now you should be persecuted, if not prosecuted, if not killed. And they thought, well, but what if he does say, okay, no, no, Roman law, Romans decide. Then what are they going to do? They're going to say, ah, Jesus, who are you more loyal to? The Roman Emperor or to God? Because God in the Old Testament said we should stone her to death. And now in their human thinking, they couldn't figure out any other option. They didn't see any other alternative. But Jesus, despite being fully man, he's also fully God. And he is in tune with his Father. And he understands Old Testament Scripture. And he understands in his sovereignty that it was a trap. And he understood, yeah, but you know what? God's ways are higher. God's ways are better. God's ways are different. And I'm going to teach these people... God's way of dealing with difficult situations like this. In their foolish human wisdom, they've only got two options. I've got another one. And it's infinitely and it's eternally better. His option was different, unfortunately, than some of ours. Let's apply not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Let's let the Holy Spirit guide us through this situation, giving us the wisdom to deal with it. Now, in our own lives, is it not like that sometimes? Where we look at a situation, it could have to do with, where am I going to study at university? What am I going to study? It could have to do with, who am I going to marry? It could have to do with, what's my career going to be? It could even be much smaller decisions. It could be relationships that have been broken that need to be restored. It could be sins that need to be forgiven, but they're those besetting sins that you just can't get past. And we go, there's one option or there's another. And we don't think, what does Scripture say about it? We don't pray about it. We don't wait for God to intervene and to act supernaturally. But that's what Jesus did. He said, what does Scripture teach? In spirit, not just truth. And what does the Holy Spirit want to accomplish here? Well, the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish one thing. Exalt Christ. Give glory to God. So what does Jesus do? Being sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leadership. And remember, what did he do the night before? He went to a place of isolation. Like he did just before his death, probably praying and saying, God, I need wisdom. I want to do what pleases your heart, Father. And so the situation comes. He faces the dilemma and he says, well, I'll deal with it just like this. He thinks that. And then verse 6 and verse 8, it says, he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And in verse 8, once more, he bent down. 
and wrote on the ground. He knew how to deal with the dilemma. He knew how to handle the test. And he knew how to pass with flying colors. In a way, for us, passing with flying colors means you gave the maximum amount of glory to God in the way you handled the situation. So he bends down. Now, that right there, just that expression, bent down, is twice. He did it twice. That, to me, sounds like something very significant. It makes me think of the incarnation. It makes me think of Philippians chapter 2, where it says that Jesus humbled himself. God became a man. And we found him in the appearance of a man. And then we crucified him. He went to die on the cross. What does that mean? It means he bent down. He stooped down. He left heaven. And he came into earth. He left his heavenly context and became a man in a human body that was subject to death and to decay, possibly. It was subject to murder. It was subject to colds. It was subject to gripe suina, if they had had it back then. Which, by the way, I hate to say this, but one of our brothers in Christ, a, a brother pastor, um, actually thinks that he knows where the swine flu came from. He said, remember back when Jesus cast the demons out of the pigs, the swine? Well, now those demons are getting their revenge and attacking the people of God through the swine flu. And I thought, well, let me see. No. Uh, yeah, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Nothing that could possibly justify that position. So let's um, just discard that one. And, and let's assume that swine flu has something to do with the fallen nature that we are in because of the sinfulness that Adam and Eve brought into the world. And the fact that we're born with sinful natures and we do sinful things and everything is subject to decay and deterioration and that includes the presence of diseases in our midst. Jesus can heal them and he can overcome them. But I don't think the swine flu has to do with those pigs 2,000 years ago. Anyway, back to our main point. Jesus bent down. Jesus lowered himself in order to deal with sin. He came out of heaven into the earth to deal with our sin. He came out of his heavenly condition to an earthly human body to deal with our sin. And that's what he's doing right here. He bends down. He's doing something very symbolic, representing who he is. And he starts to deal with the woman's sin. But there's more. I love this symbolism. I love how Jesus subtly uses terminology or does things that symbolically represent to those Jewish people around him. It's subtle, but he knows they're not going to miss it. And he's saying, in your face, he's saying, I'm God. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that was promised over 300 times in the Old Testament. He does it by stooping down. He does it by writing with his finger. He wrote with his finger. What does that bring to mind? If you think back to Exodus, when God gave the commandments, the Ten Commandments in particular, to Moses, and then in chapter 31, verse 18, it says, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Ah, I'm, 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 I get goosebumps and my face turns red with emotion, not in anger, just in excitement and amazement. 
when I think that Jesus knew very well what he was doing. He said, see this finger right here? This is the finger of God. You want to challenge me? You think I don't know how to deal with this situation? I can deal with it with my finger. Watch this. And he gets down on the ground. And he starts to write. He bends down. God comes into the world. He starts to write. It's the finger of God writing. And he deals with our sin. He dealt with the sin of that woman. People speculate about what he may have written. And the Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know. He might have been writing the names of those accusers. Those Jewish spiritual authorities around him. Could be. He might have been writing the name of the man who committed adultery who wasn't even there. He goes, I'm God. I'm not in heaven right now. I'm here in in the earth. But I'm God. I know everything. And I'm going to use my little finger right here at this point. And I'm going to write the man's name who committed adultery. He's not here, but I know who it is. Because I'm omniscient. Because I'm God. He may have been writing one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. He may have been writing something along the lines of which, at that point, it wasn't Matthew 5.28, but it was soon to be Matthew 5.28, because Matthew was soon to record Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So maybe he was writing, Adultery in your heart. Maybe he was writing what would later become Matthew 5, 28. I I like to think, because I love the connection between the Old Testament Messianic prophecies and the fact that they are fulfilled in one person only, and that was Jesus. And the chances of that happening are, are, I mean, when when you do your little mathematical figuring, and it's one to times 10 to the how many power, um, it's something like hundreds of powers. I mean, when you the, the chance of one man fulfilling, I, I'm trying to remember, one man fulfilling something like only 30 of the prophecies is something like 1 times 10 to the 31st power. But that's only a handful of prophecies. It's not the 300 plus Old Testament prophecies. It is, it is humanly speaking impossible for one man to fulfill all the Old Testament Messianic prophecies. I mean, way more than impossible. It's like the amount, if you were to cover Brazil several meters high with grains of sand, and then you have to find one particular grain of sand, which represents the one man that is capable in all of history of fulfilling the 300 Messianic prophecies, what are the chances of you finding one sand, one tiny grain of sand? In the size of Brazil, several meters high, it's impossible. And it's the same. And Jesus is this man. So he probably is thinking, you know, God, Father, thanks for all those amazing Old Testament prophecies that talk about me. And he might write down with his finger of God and write in the sand one of the Old Testament Messianic prophecies, like Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions, remember? And he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. You think that maybe Jesus was writing down 
for all of them to see. Hey, is he telling us again that he's the Messiah? And for her to see. Hey, this guy's telling me yes. He's the one and only one person that can actually forgive me of my sins. But what's he doing? He's saying, woman, it's not about you. It's all about me. I'm the Messiah. And this encounter today will exalt me. People will see that I am the Messiah. But you know what? It's not just for my glory. Secondarily, it's for your good. Because I'm the one man in all of history, in all of eternity, that is qualified to forgive your sin. Because I've lived a perfect life up until now. I'm going to live a perfect life until they nail me to the cross. And even then I'm going to live a perfect life. And I will not turn my back on my Father. And I will not swear. And I will not curse. And I will not bail out. And through that, my sacrifice on the cross, your adultery will be forgiven. Then he stands up. He says it twice in verse 7 and verse 10. He stood up and he stood up again. What does it mean when somebody stands up? If he's kneeling down writing or if he was in his teaching guru format and then he stands up, when you speak with authority, you don't speak sitting down. You stand up. And Jesus is standing up saying, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. You already know that I speak with authority. And he stands up. He takes a position of authority. And then he continues his message. And his message is, I don't overlook sin. I'm not going to overlook this adultery. But I also don't take kindly when mere mortals challenge me and try to put me to the test. So I'm going to teach again. I'm going to speak again. And I'm going to do it with authority. He takes some action. So he stands up. Verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Is there anybody without sin? This is the most basic message of all. And I don't have to go into details on this. We know what Romans chapter 3 verses 10 and 23 say. That there is no one without sin. No, no one. Not even one. And that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, I just said it. All of us have gone astray, each to our own way. Doing what's right in our eyes, not what's right in God's eyes. Total depravity. Utter sinfulness. That's who we are. If we're outside of Christ and Christ doesn't indwell us. And the Old Testament law said that the accuser would have to throw the first stone. And Jesus says, all right, let's obey the spirit of the law. Before you throw the first stone, just you know, make a little pledge to me that you haven't sinned. You know, just tell me. If it's true, if you haven't sinned, then you're in a position of authority and you can throw the first stone. Nobody's said anything. They're all quiet. And then Jesus is saying, he didn't say it here, but we can understand it. He got around the trap. He said, this is God's way. You tried to trap me. Only two options. There was a third option. It was God's way. God's way is, first of all, you don't have the authority to condemn this woman. Second of all, I have the authority to condemn this woman. But I'm not going to Instead, I'm going to offer her forgiveness and eternal life. So Jesus gets around the trick question. He demonstrates that he's the Messiah. And he puts all of them 
on their rear ends, if I can say that. He just, it's, it's as if a, a nuclear explosion took place in their midst. And they said, we weren't expecting that. And what do we do now? Well, they did something. Verse 9, when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. Their consciences in the Holy Spirit's sovereign imposition, their consciences convicted them. And they realized, no, not me. I, yeah, in fact, I've done this exact sin. I'm an adulterer. I've done it here in my head and heart, or I've done it actually physically. So, no, I'm not actually in a position to condemn this woman, which means I can't throw the first stone. And, in fact, right now I'm feeling pretty embarrassed and ashamed. Because this guy got around our trap and made us all look like fools. And the oldest one leaves. He's probably the one that, that developed the plan in the first place. And then the next oldest, and the next one, the next one. They all just disappeared. Jesus overcame the trap. Verse 9, and I'm just about to wrap up. It says that the woman was left alone with Jesus. Oh, well, that's powerful. One day you and I are going to stand before Jesus. And... There may be other people around witnessing, but at that moment, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the, the witnesses in glory are watching on. Because at that moment, it's you and Jesus. And at that moment, you're going to be remembering verses like Romans 14, 10 and 12, which say, We will all stand before the judgment of God. And each of us will give an account of himself to God. You don't care if people are around or not. You're going to see Christ. You're going to recognize once and for all, yeah, He's the Messiah. He's the one. He's the Savior. And then you're going to say, and Jesus, thank you so much because you're also my Lord. Your death on the cross, I believed in. I accepted it. You entered into my life. You took possession of me. You cleansed me. And it was a long process. And it's not completed until now. But now it is. Thank you, Jesus. Or you're going to stand before him and look and recognize his lordship and say, Why? Did I not listen when people told me or when I heard Scripture preached that Jesus was Lord? Why did I just act like I could still be in charge of my life? And then it would be okay and it would turn out fine. Why did I act like my good works would get me to heaven? Because now I'm recognizing that Jesus really is Lord, but it's too late. And you'll face judgment. You'll be alone with Jesus and He's going to judge. Because He has the authority to do so and He has the right to do so. Do so. And you're going to go to your eternal destination. Heaven or hell, there is no other option. The presence of God for eternity in, in bliss and worshipfulness. Or the presence of Satan, which that's not so bad. What's worse is the absence of the presence of God. And eternal conscientious suffering and punishment for not having been forgiven in the first place. Accepting the, forgiven, uh, the forgiveness of and the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. Verses 10 and 11. And we'll finish it. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He calls her a woman. He didn't call her a prostitute or a slut, to use some vulgar English vocabulary, or a whore. He used the same word that he used in John chapter 2 to address his own mother. He said, Woman, where are they? Where are your condemners? He showed her dignity and respect. 
She may not have been worthy of it as an adulteress, but she was worthy of it as someone who had been created in the image of God. And Jesus recognized that and extended to her that sense of dignity. And he extended to her the love of his father, which she may never have experienced from any man in her entire life. If she ended up as a prostitute, it's because she never understood what a real father was like. And she never understood what a real man is like. Real men don't mistreat women. Real men don't abuse women. Real men don't take advantage of women. She had never experienced that. Now she was for the first time. And it was in Jesus, the Messiah. All the others were gone. I mean, since their conviction, their own conviction in a sense. And when she says, no, Jesus, no one is condemning me. They're all gone. It makes us think of Romans chapter 8. Verse 1 starts out, there's therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And then verses, I'm going to read verses 31 through 34. And then we're close to finishing. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Salvation, redemption. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No one. It's God who justifies. There is no charge against God's elect because God justified them through the cross. Who is to condemn? No one, because Christ Jesus is the one who died on the cross. More than that, He was raised from the dead. And now He's at the right hand of God. He, indeed, is interceding for us. He, indeed, is the one who judges us one day. Not humanity. So, therefore, we're not condemned. And she understood this teaching that would come later on and that Paul would pen for us. And Jesus then says, verse 11, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He is implicitly, for me it's explicit, but it could be interpreted as implicit. He forgives her, and he lets her go. He doesn't stone her. He doesn't let anybody else stone her. He lets her go. He doesn't invoke the Old Testament command to say you're worthy of death. He lets you go. He forgives her. He's God. He can do that. He's a righteous judge. He did what nobody else could do. Remember what he should have done? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What did he do? He forgave her, set her free from her sin, let her go, and even told her, sin no more. He did this on the basis of what he knew he would do very soon. He knew he would go to the cross. He knew he would provide the means for our salvation. Not just to forgiveness, for salvation. He would do what Martin Luther called the great exchange. He was looking her in the eyes with authority and love and saying, I forgive you. Because in the very near future, I'm going to let them nail me to the cross. In other words, Jesus did cast the first stone. He cast it on himself. He killed himself so that she wouldn't have to be killed. And so that she could be forgiven. And so that she could experience eternal life. All of her sins and all of our sins went to the cross. Jesus killed himself. He cast the first stone upon himself to forgive all of us from our sins. Her sin would be punished on the cross. 
Our sins were punished on the cross. When they exposed her and they brought her sin to Jesus, they wanted to trap her. Jesus said, no, no go. I'm going to turn this thing around. I'm going to turn it into something good for her. I'm going to turn it into something glorious for me. And he rejects the legalist. He says, I'm not going to condemn He rejects the relativist who says, oh, you mean you can just keep sinning? No, he says, go and sin no more. He gives us the means to sin no more. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overcome us except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. Remember 2 Peter 1, 3? His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness according to our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He doesn't just forgive us from the sins in the past. He says, you can go away. And from here on out, you don't have to sin anymore because I provide the means for you to stand up under the temptation. It's the Holy Spirit. It's just like I stood up under temptation. I stood up under this test. It's the Holy Spirit. And you can stand up too. See, it would be useless for Christ to conquer sin and death and Satan and then not create a mechanism for us to continue without sinning. What would be the point? Through conquering sin and Satan and death on the cross and then sending the promised Holy Spirit, He gives us the means to live pure and holy lives. So, I only have two big ideas. I've preached for a long time, longer than we're used to here. I'm sorry about that. I'm not really sorry about that, actually. We didn't do so much at the beginning, so we're still finishing around the time we always do. The two big ideas. If you go away thinking, doggone it, he sure did preach a long time, and you can't remember what I said, just remember two things. The first one is, it's always all about Jesus. Everything is always all about Jesus. It's why you exist. For the praise of His glory. That's what Ephesians 1 says. You are about the glory of Jesus. You live for the glory of Jesus. It's the positive motivation to not sin. The negative is I don't want to be condemned. I don't want to be stoned literally or figuratively. If I'm a Muslim, it'll be literal. If it's figurative, I'll suffer with the guilt of my sin. No, I don't want to not sin because of negative motivations. I want to not sin because of a positive motivation. It's all about Jesus. It's all about His glory. Everything is always all about Jesus. And then the second big idea is that through Christ and in Christ, the fact that He overcame and triumphed over Satan and sin and death, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy always triumphs over judgment because Christ already triumphed over sin, sin and death. The two big ideas, it's always all about Jesus. Everything is always all about Jesus. And mercy always triumphs over condemnation and judgment. Let's pray. Father, I, I don't even need to pray anything more really because the message was long. And it was full of truth. It was full of what you have brought to the surface through this passage, which definitely should be in Scripture. Thank you for illuminating your word. Father, my prayer for my brothers and sisters and myself is that we leave here today remembering everything is always all about Jesus. And therefore, I want to live for the praise of His glory and mercy. And we can add 
forgiveness and we can have grace. Mercy always triumphs over judgment and always triumphs over condemnation because you triumphed over sin, sin, and death on the cross. Thank you for that, Jesus. Now I pray that the Holy Spirit will help us live for the praise of your glory and live in light of the fact that you have already triumphed and we therefore are victorious in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.